This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you for the invitation. Um, you have to get used to a German accent for the next 40 to 50 minutes, but I'm confident that you will manage. Thomas Aquinas on the act of faith, what it is and why it matters. This is the assigned topic of the evening. Before we enter our topic directly, let us keep the following in mind. There are three basic ways we come to know things, Aquinas would tell you. First, by our senses. Second, by our discursive activity of thinking. Third, by the testimony of others. That is by our participation in their sense knowledge, like Peter saw the accident and is telling me about it, or in their discursive knowledge, my math teacher teaches me calculus. It is the latter knowledge that is received, at least initially, by the act of believing, credere, and held by belief or faith, fides. The Latin has only one word for the two English words, belief and faith. I believe Peter's account of the accident. I have to believe my math teacher if I want to learn calculus or my Chinese teacher if I want to learn Chinese. In the following, we are only dealing with his third way of coming to know things. The way of participating in the sense knowledge or in the discursive knowledge of others. I shall consider our topic under six aspects. First, the indispensability of faith. Second, the nature of faith. Third, the act of faith proper. Fourth, the certitude of faith. Five, faith as self-commitment to God. And sixth, the beginning of faith or the act of conversion. All six aspects need to be considered in order to appreciate the act of faith in all of its relevant aspects. Let us turn first to the indispensability of faith. Why would human beings need faith in the first place? Maybe faith is superfluous. And I'm echoing here Thomas Aquinas as he takes up these questions. They are quite uh, contemporaneous and relevant for us. After all, it seems first that faith should not be considered necessary for humankind. Consider what Ecclesiastes 7 states. What does a human need to seek things that are above him or her? This is to say there is no need for humans to search things that are above them. But those things that are believed are beyond or above the human as exceeding his or her reason. Otherwise, his or her reason, which is the cause of knowledge, would suffice. Therefore, it is not necessary for humans that over and above the truths of reason, that is the truths we come to know by our own discursive reasoning, we should be taught things that we have to believe. Consider second objection. God established human nature as something perfect when God created it. 
after all Deuteronomium 32.4 states, the works of God are perfect. But from the ability of the human mind, according to its natural condition, humans cannot attain to those things which must be known by faith. Otherwise, they would be able to possess scientific knowledge of these things. That is a knowledge which is caused by the fact that conclusions are resolved into naturally known principles. Since therefore a thing is called perfect, if it lacks nothing that it ought to possess, it seems that humans do not require faith. And the third objection might go like this. Whenever there is acceptance of knowledge without judgment, the road to error is easy. But we have in ourselves no ability by which we are able to judge of the things which we accept by faith. Since our natural judgment does not extend to truths of this kind, as they exceed reason. Therefore, evidently the road to error is an easy one for us. And so it would appear rather harmful than useful for humans that they should be directed to God by the way of faith. You see that in these objections, the notion of belief or faith, fides, pertains to things that the human mind can understand and even comprehend, as well as to those things that exceed human understanding. In the beginning, Thomas is considering both aspects. Later, he's focusing on faith in the strict sense. So how is Thomas responding to these objections? He has a few arguments ready. First, those things without which human society cannot be conserved are especially necessary for humans, Thomas argues. Since humans are political animals, they live together. They need to live together and work together. But without faith, human society cannot be preserved since it is necessary that one human believe in the promises of another and in his testimony and the like, for this is necessary if humans are to live together. Therefore, faith is most necessary for humankind. A second argument for the necessity of faith, Thomas turns to Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. But it is supremely necessary for humans that they be pleasing to God, since otherwise they can neither do nor possess any good. Therefore, faith is most necessary for human beings. And the third argument, it is most necessary for humans to know the truth, since beatitude, that is surpassing and everlasting happiness, is joy in knowing the truth. We come back to that argument later. Yet faith establishes believers in truth and establishes truth in them. And therefore faith is most necessary for humans. So initially we can see that one can raise, bring up arguments that uh, make a case that faith seems to be necessary for humankind. We cannot flourish without faith. But what is actually the nature of faith? That is what Thomas has to clarify next. Thomas observes that faith, fides, is something between opinion on the one side and knowledge and understanding on the other side. 
It has something in common with opinion, and it has something in common with knowledge and understanding. And for this reason, Thomas takes faith to hold this midway position between opinion on the one side and understanding and knowledge on the other. In common with understanding and knowledge, faith possesses certain and fixed assent. And in this, it differs from opinion. For opinion accepts one of two positions, one of two opposites, actually. Though with fear, Thomas observes, that the other may be true. And because of this doubt, it fluctuates between the contraries. In common with opinion, faith is concerned with things that are not naturally apparent to our understanding. And in this respect, faith differs from understanding and knowledge. Yet how is it? that something is not apparent to our understanding, Thomas wonders. And there are basically two reasons for that. First, certain objects are in and of themselves not knowable to the human mind. That is one category. The other one, second, is that there's a lack of intellectual ability on the side of the human being. Those are the two reasons that need to be considered. Let us look first at uh, the first one uh, Thomas raises. Certain objects are in and of themselves not knowable to the human mind. This may be due to some lack on the part of things as in the case of singular and contingent things, which are remote from our senses, like the actions, words, and thoughts of others not immediately present to us. For these are of such a nature that they may be known to one person, but unknown to others. Peter saw the accident, I didn't. Also people are in different states of knowledge. Some do know very well what others only know to a certain degree or not at all. My math teacher knows calculus. I'm only in the very beginning to understand it. I'm beginning to learn Chinese. I'm just grasping the very basics. I rely completely on what my Chinese teacher tells me. Since among people living together, Thomas argues, one person relies on others regarding those things in which they are not self-sufficient. And therefore every person needs to be able to rely with as much certainty on what another knows but of which he or she himself or herself is ignorant as upon the truths which he himself knows. Hence, Thomas argues in human society, faith is necessary in order that one person give credence to the words of another. Let's look at the second reason why something might not be apparent to understanding. There's a lack of intellectual ability on the side of the human being. The truth of things may also not be evident because of some defect on our part, as in the case of certain rather remote things or truths. Thomas calls them divine and necessary things, which according to their own nature are most knowable, yet we cannot understand them from the outset 
because we are not capable of immediate intellection of these things. Rather, it is in accordance with human nature to move from the knowledge of things less knowable in themselves and posterior by nature, that primarily sense knowledge, to knowledge of things that are in themselves more knowable and prior by nature. But what we know first, we do know on the strength of what we eventually come to know, Thomas argues. So from the very beginning, we must have some knowledge of those things that are more knowable in themselves and prior in nature. But this is impossible without believing. And this is evident, Thomas argues, from the order of the sciences. For that science that is concerned with highest causes, namely metaphysics, comes last in human knowledge. Yet the sciences that preceded must presuppose certain truths that are more fully elucidated in metaphysics. Therefore, every science has some suppositions that must be believed in order to carry on the process of learning. The learner must believe certain presuppositions given in any science. Yet someone has to be in the know, we would want to say. Someone has to be in the know, at least in the process of learning. Not everyone can be a believer. Thomas agrees and states explicitly in the Summa Conda Gentiles, one who believes gives assent to things that are proposed to him by another person and which he himself does not see. Hence, faith has a knowledge that is more like hearing than vision. We come back to that later. Faith is more like a knowledge that comes from hearing. It's more like hearing than vision. Now a person would not believe in things that are unseen but proposed to him by another person unless he thought that this other person had more perfect knowledge of these proposed things than he himself, who does not see them. So either the believer's judgment is false, or else the proposer must have more perfect knowledge of the things proposed. And if the proposer only knows these things by hearing them from another person, this cannot go on indefinitely for the ascent of faith would be foolish and without certitude. Indeed, we would discover no first thing certain in itself, which would bring certainty to the faith of the believer." Unquote. So there's for the human being, some knowledge of God, which is higher than the knowledge of faith. That is one of the consequences we'll talk later on. Either the one who proposes the faith sees the truth immediately, as is the case when we believe in Christ, or he takes it immediately from one who does see, as when we believe the apostles and the prophets, Thomas argues. So what Thomas is arguing here is that belief does not establish its own legitimacy. It can only derive its legitimacy from someone who knows the subject matter of his own accord. By virtue of contact with this someone, 
belief is transmitted to the believer. Hence, belief is something secondary. Whenever belief is meaningfully held, there is someone else who supports the believer, and this someone else cannot be a believer. Thus, the reliance, which is the decisive factor in the act of belief, must be found upon some knowledge on the part of the believer if it is to be valid. The credibility of the witness whom we believe cannot also be the subject of belief. This is where indeed real knowledge is required. This is how Joseph Peaver argues very well in his small book, Belief and Faith, interpreting Thomas. So much to believe or faith feeds in general as an indispensable way of coming to know things that are not obvious to our senses, nor obvious to our own mind, or knowable by our own discursive reasoning. Where the rubber hits the road, so to speak, for Thomas, though, as a theologian, is this. Much more is at stake when it comes to faith now in the narrow, strict sense in which the theologian engages the matter. The ultimate goal or end of human life, Thomas argues, is surpassing an unending happiness, beatitude. This is what everyone desires. Yet this beatitude can only be attained if the human being is united with what is the end of the intellect, the first truth, and what is the end of the will, the supreme good. The first truth and the supreme good, however, is of course God. Since surpassing beatitude consists in the full cognition of and in the loving union with God, it is necessary that human life be directed to this beatitude by an initial possession of divine truths by faith, truths which the human person can hope to know fully only in the ultimate state of human perfection. This is the reason why faith in the narrow and specific theological sense is called divine faith. It is faith in the divine truth as communicated by the divine truth. Let us turn now to the act of faith considered as divine faith specifically. The act of faith, the ascent that is called to believe, credere. Whenever there is acceptance of a truth by whatever mode of ascent, Thomas argues, there must be something which moves the mind to ascent. Just as the naturally possessed light of the intellect pauses ascent to first principles. And the truth of those first principles causes ascent to conclusions made from them. But that which inclines the mind to ascend to the first principles of understanding or to conclusions known from first principles, Thomas argues, is what he calls a sufficient induction which forces ascent and is sufficient to judge of those things to which the mind gives its ascent. 
In a mathematical proof, the assent is immediately given, what he calls force by the induction, and we make a judgment that it's true. On the other hand, Thomas argues, whatever inclines one to form an opinion, even though with a ground, with a good amount of conviction, a strong opinion or a vehement opinion, as he calls it, is not that sufficient form of induction whereby ascent is forced. And for this reason, there cannot be a perfect judgment of the things to which ascent is given. That's characteristic of an opinion. Therefore, Thomas concludes also in faith by which we believe in God, there must be a first acceptance of the truths to which we give assent. But second, there must also be something which inclines us to that ascent. And Thomas calls this the special light that is the habitus or disposition of faith divinely infused into the human mind. The human mind receives a special light, a special illumination. The light of faith, a kind of impression of the first truth in our minds cannot fail any more than God can deceive us or lie. And therefore this light suffices for making a judgment a judgment about that what is proposed to be believed. This infused habitus or disposition of faith, however, does not move us by way of intellectual understanding. We do not fully understand what is proposed to us. Rather, Thomas argues, it uh, moves us by way of the will. This light does not make us comprehend those truths with which, we, uh, which we believe, nor does it force ascent, like in strict scientific knowledge, but it causes us to ascend to them voluntarily. And thus Thomas holds, faith comes in two ways, namely from God by reason of the interior light, which induces ascent, and also by reason of those truths which are proposed exteriorly through hearing, they are proposed to us, and take their source from divine revelation, the proclamation of the gospel. Thomas takes these latter things to be related to the knowledge which is of faith as things known by the senses are to knowledge of first principles, because in both cases, there is a certain determination given to cognition. As cognition of first principles is received by way of sense experience, and yet the light by which those principles are known is innate. So, Thomas argues, faith comes by way of hearing, and yet the habitus or disposition of faith is infused. We come to hold certain things by faith, yet things that transcend our comprehension. It is for this very reason that Thomas characterizes the act of faith, credere, as thinking with assent, as thinking with assent. In Latin, he calls it cum assensu cocitare, cum assensu cocitare, thinking with assent. 
It is crucial to understand here that Thomas means by thinking, cogitare, this. Namely, that consideration of the intellect, which is accompanied by some kind of investigation and which precedes the intellect's arrival at the stage of perfection that comes with the certitude of intellectual sight. In this way, thinking or cogitare is, probably speaking, the movement of the mind while yet deliberating and not yet perfected by the clear sight of truth. Cogitare is thinking without reaching the terminus in a clear and strict knowledge. This is exactly the nature of the act of believing according to Thomas. To quote him, for among the acts of belonging to the intellect, some have a firm ascent without any such kind of thinking, as when a person considers the things that he knows by science or understands. For this consideration is already formed, but some acts of the intellect have unformed thought devoid of firm assent, whether they incline to neither side, as in one who doubts, or incline to one side rather than the other, but on account of some slight motif, as in one who suspects, or incline to one side, yet with fear of the other, as in one who opines. But the act to believe, credere, Thomas rightly observes, cleaves firmly to one side. In this respect, belief has something in common with science and understanding. Yet its knowledge does not attain the perfection of clear intellectual sight. And therein, belief agrees with doubt, suspicion, and opinion. Hence, it is proper to the believer to think with assent, cum assensu cogitare, so that the act of believing is distinguished from all other acts of the intellect, which are about the true or the false. Thomas puts it crisply thus, faith of its very nature contains an imperfection on the part of the subject, that is the, that the believer sees not what he believes, sees meaning with the intellect, has no clear intellectual side of what he believes. Let us recapitulate what Thomas is saying here with the help of uh, his formulation in De Veritate. In faith, the ascent and the thinking, the cogitare, are more or less parallel. For the ascent is not caused by the thought, but by the will. However, since the understanding does not in this way have its action terminated at one thing, so that it is conducted in its proper term, which is the intellectual side of some intelligible object, it follows that its movement is not yet brought to rest. Rather, it still thinks discursively and investigates about the things which it believes, even though its assent to them is unwavering. 
for insofar as it depends on itself alone. The understanding is not satisfied and is not limited to one thing. Instead, its action is terminated only from without. Because of this, the understanding of the believer is said to be held captive, since in place of its own proper determinations, those of something else are imposed on it. Here Thomas cites 2 Corinthians 10.5, St. Paul, bringing into captivity every understanding, meaning faith bringing into captivity every understanding. Because of this, Thomas argues, and that's very important, a movement directly opposite to what the believer holds most firmly can arise in him or her. Although this cannot happen to one who understands or has scientific knowledge. The source of believing ascent, the revealing God, is extrinsic to the intellect itself. The motive, while sufficient to move the will, is insufficient to move the intellect. Hence, cogitare, thinking with assent, implies a certain restlessness, unfulfillment of the intellect. Because the cogitare cannot reach its terminus, it cannot reach the intellectual vision the scientific knowledge which regarding God is characteristic only of the beatific vision. Yet you might wonder, how can faith understood in this way by Thomas have certitude? What is the certitude of faith? Remember Thomas after all describes certitude in his sentence commentary as a quality of knowledge quote, as the firmness of the knowing power's adherence to the known object, unquote. Yet the act of faith, cum ascensu cogitare, thinking with ascent, does not reach its term, knowledge. This seems to make certitude of faith impossible. Thomas resolves this difficulty by way of a pertinent distinction. Certitude has two aspects. The one aspect pertains to the subject. And in this regard, faith is indeed less certain than understanding, knowledge and wisdom. Because what faith pertains to essentially transcends human understanding. The other aspect of certitude pertains, however, to the cause of certitude. Whatever has a more certain cause, Thomas argues, is itself more certain. And so Thomas holds that, quote, in this respect, faith has a greater certitude than understanding, knowledge, or wisdom, because faith is grounded on divine truth while understanding, knowledge, and wisdom are grounded on human reasoning." Unquote. Thomas can say this because in faith we rely on divine truth, not only materially, that is regarding the content of what is conveyed to be held by faith, 
but rather we also rely on divine truth regarding the one who is the revealer, the one who communicates the truth. Thomas explains the matter thus. The object of every kind of knowing includes two things. First, that which is known materially and is the material object, so to speak. And secondly, that whereby it is known, which is the formal aspect of the object, that whereby it is known, the formal aspect of the object. Thus, in the science of geometry, the conclusions are what is known materially, while the formal aspect of the science is the mean of demonstration through which the conclusions are known. Accordingly, if we consider in faith the formal aspect of the object, it is nothing else than the first truth, God himself. For the faith of which we are speaking does not ascend to anything, Thomas insists, except because it is revealed by God. Hence, the mean on which faith is based is the divine truth. Unquote. The formal aspect of the object of faith is that is the God who is true, who knows and speaks the truth. Faith ascends to God himself. It is through this adherence to God in virtue of the light of faith that faith is a theological virtue, having God himself as its immediate object, materially and formally. Faith is grounded on divine truth and hence has objectively the greatest certitude, though subjectively a lesser certitude than understanding, knowledge and wisdom. Yet remember the light of faith does not make us comprehend the truths we believe, but rather causes us to ascend to them voluntarily. And there we come to the topic of faith as self-commitment to God. In assigning an effective volitional basis and cause of the mind's believing ascent, Thomas clarifies that the act of faith is a self-commitment to God. The will is the one power in which the radical inclination of the person to the human good is concentrated. The revelation that is the self-giving, existing and inviting true destiny of the human being, the surpassing good that grants surpassing beatitude is decisive here. Because the truth proposed for belief and the act of belief are from God, inviting the human being to share in God's life. And because the will is hardwired for desiring good, the will can be attracted by the object. Hence, Thomas's full definition of the act of faith. Quote, the act of faith, credere, is itself an act of the intellect that ascends to divine truth at the command of the will, which is moved by God through grace. And so the act of faith is subject to free choice in relation to God. The act of faith is voluntary. The ascent of faith is in the intellect, 
because it is an ascent to a truth, but the intellect is moved by the will to make the act of ascent. So we ask ourselves in the beginning of faith, in the act of conversion, are we turning ourselves freely to God? Is it completely up to us to turn ourselves to God? Is it up to us simply to do what is in us? According to Thomas, after the fall from original righteousness and original grace, human beings, now in the state of a weakened human nature due to original sin, are not able to turn themselves to God without God's help. The turning to God, the act of conversion or the beginning of faith, is itself a gift from God. But if so, how could it be voluntary? If God does the turning, does the conversion not follow by necessity? After all, God moves the will, the will commands the intellect to ascend to the truth of the gospel, to what God conveys through his authorized witnesses. Where is here the voluntary act? So let us turn to the beginning of faith or the act of conversion, which we need to understand, to understand the act of faith fully. According to Thomas, the beginning of faith, the initium fidei, denotes the special divine motion, a divine help or auxilium as he calls it, by which God efficaciously orders the human will to God as its final end. This turning of the will, its rectification or effective justification, issues in the wills, issues in the will's desire for God as the overarching specific good it desires. Because the will is the efficient cause of all human acts, and because it moves all the other powers of the soul to their own acts, the will is the first principle of sin. That is what Thomas discusses in his analysis of the sin of the first parents. And consequently, all the powers of the soul, of all the powers of the soul, the will has been most directly affected by original sin, that is by the loss of original righteousness. And for this reason, Thomas argues, it is necessary first and foremost, that the rectitude of the will be restored effectively from evil to good. In the beginning of faith, therefore, God acts directly on the radical orientation of the will. Thomas states, quote, an external cause alters free choice as when God by grace changes the will of a human being from evil to good. As Proverbs 21 verse one says, the heart of the king is in God's hands and God will turn it wherever so he wills, unquote. This changing of the will from evil does not violate or contradict the will's proper operation. For the will advanced to its first movement in virtue of the instigation or instinctus of some exterior mover, who is God himself. Thanks to the special divine instigation, of the gratuitous help, the auxilium. Now the appetitive inclination of the will 
tends to God himself as the overarching specific good, as the supernatural end of the will. When God, when Thomas responds to the question whether human beings can prepare themselves for grace without the external aid of grace, he states, to prepare oneself for grace is, as it were, to be turned to God, to be turned to God. As transcendent first cause, God moves interiorly as a cause genuinely external to the order of secondary causality. In other words, one's own act of preparation is caused by God without that act losing its integrity as the will's proper operation being drawn towards its end. But now this end being the special end of adhering to God. The interior action is concerned solely with the end itself. The external action pertains to the means that lead to the end. And so the first effect of the gratuitous help or auxilium, Thomas argues, pertains to the interior action of the will. Regarding this action, the will is moved and God is the sole mover. Thomas states it explicitly. Now there's a double act in us. First, there's the interior act of the will. And with regard to this act, the will is a thing moved and God is the mover. And especially when the will, which hitherto willed evil, begins to will good. And hence, inasmuch as God moves the human mind to this act, we speak of operating grace. That is indeed the gratuitous auxilium of this special divine motion that we receive. The operating grace of conversion is the very action of the will, willing God as the overarching special good to be desired. That is as willing God as the supernatural end. Accordingly, the internal act of faith arising from the new principle is a free act an act of free choice, liberum arbitrium. Thomas states, now the act of believing is an act of the intellect ascending to the divine truth at the command of the will moved by the grace of God, so that it is subject to the free will in relation to God. And consequently, the act of faith can be meritorious. The second effect of this grace pertains to the exterior action. Thomas explains, since the exterior act is commanded by the will, the operation of this act is attributed to the will. And because God assists us in this act, both by strengthening our will interiorly, so as to attain to the act, and by granting outwardly the capability of operating, it is with respect to this that we speak of cooperating grace. Consequently, as Thomas emphasizes, God does not justify us without ourselves because while we are being justified, we consent to God's justification by a movement of our free will. Nevertheless, this movement is not the cause of grace, but the effect. And hence the whole operation pertains to grace. So already acts of prayer asking for God's help are the cooperative effect of God's supernatural gratuitous help. 
operating grades. To summarize, the difference between the will that is moved and not moving and the will that is moved and also moving is the difference between willing the end and willing the means leading to this end. The moved and moving will simply actualizes human freedom in the efficacious choice of means as the will's proximate causality is now directed to its special supernatural end, the attitude in unitive knowledge and love of the triune God. In his commentary on St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, Thomas applies this actualization of the acquired freedom to the reality of the spiritual person, that is the person who is moved by the higher prompting of the Holy Spirit. Thomas says, the spiritual person is inclined to do something not as though by a movement of his own will chiefly, but by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. As it says in Isaiah, he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And in Luke, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. However, Thomas emphasizes, this does not mean that spiritual persons do not act through will and free choice, because the Holy Spirit causes the very movement of the will and of free choice in them. As it says in Philippians, God is at work in you both to will and to work. Unquote. The gift of grace comes first as a transitory, gratuitous divine help with two distinct effects, moving the human being interiorly and the human being moving him or herself to act as moved by the transitory gratuitous divine help. This is according to Thomas, the dynamic of the act of conversion of the beginning of faith. Let us summarize quickly the main um, aspects of the act of faith in the end of what I try to cover here. First, faith in the wider sense is absolutely necessary for human, individual, and communal flourishing. Second, all forms of faith presuppose a knower. Without a proper knower, faith is unreasonable. It is gullibility and mere enthusiasm. Third, the act of faith in the narrow theological sense is the act of the intellect an act of assent commanded by the will that is moved by grace. Fourth, the act of assent leads to thinking with assent, which falls short of knowledge in the strict sense, the mental comprehending that leads to an intellectual seeing. while indeed one can achieve such knowledge of the preambles of faith. First and foremost, the knowledge of the existence of God. Yet none of this seeing is possible in this life regarding the proper mysteries of the faith, like the triune identity of God, the, the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the body of Christ, the mystery of the resurrection and life with God. Only the thinking with assent can be done in relationship to these mysteries. This thinking with assent, the activity of faith seeking understanding, 
has no terminus in this life, only in the beatific vision. Fifth, faith is grounded on divine truth and hence has objectively the greatest certitude, though subjectively a lesser certitude than understanding, knowledge, and wisdom. Sixth, in the act of conversion, the beginning of faith, grace moves the will without compromising the voluntary character of the act of conversion. And finally, seventh, something I did not talk about, but I have to say that at the end, we must remember that according to Thomas, the act of faith is ultimately informed or superformed, or should we say perfected by the act of the theological virtue of charity, the love of friendship with God. For the union of charity with God, already in this life, Thomas uses the metaphor of touch, touching God, being in touch with God. And that can yield a knowledge of connaturality, an intimation of the beloved, or a knowledge of love that in this life of pilgrimage complements and to a certain degree perfects in some people through infused contemplation, what the act of faith cannot deliver in this life. And what is reserved to the beatific vision, namely to see the beloved with a mind's eye in a union of intellectual vision and in the love of friendship with God. I thank you all. Professor Hooter, thank you so much. So we have questions kind of pouring in. Um, but what I'm going to suggest we do actually is go to some of our uh, students first who are joining us here on Zoom. Uh, we, uh, this, this lecture is being hosted by our chapter at Yale University um, or sponsored by our chapter there. So um, we're delighted to have some of the students from Yale uh, with us on the call. Um, so our first question was asked by uh, Rifat, at, uh, who I believe told me is a sophomore at, um, at Yale. So he can correct me on that if that's wrong. And he can also correct me on the pronunciation of his name. But uh, yeah, if you want to go ahead and uh, start us off. Well, thank you, Caitlin. And thank you, Professor, for uh, being with us today. Uh, you certainly have given us uh, much to ponder. Uh, my question is the sensation of faith like at an individual level can ebb and change in our day-to-day -day lives. You know, uh, we might feel uh, very faithful in the dead of night, but one after a good night's sleep, the next morning that station is, is gone. Um, or maybe more obviously, you might feel more faithful on Sunday rather than Friday. Uh, how does Thomas explain uh, these fluctuations in faith at an individual level? Good question, thank you. Um, Thomas makes a clear distinction between faith being a commitment that has its cause in the human will, self-commitment. And the will operates with a certain independence from our emotions. Um, uh, I might make a fundamental commitment uh, uh, to, to, to study mathematics um, and commit myself to that. Uh, there are some days I feel better and some days I feel worse about it and I might come home from uh, a certain class or from a certain test and I'm ready to kind of drop the whole thing and forget about it, but I've made my commitment. So I stick it out. 
In other words, I carry it through because the will is not dependent on the emotions. Um, it is independent of the emotions. That would be Thomas's answer. And our emotions fluctuate, our passions, our emotional life goes up and down, but the faith is not rooted in our emotional life. It can have an effect on our emotional life and can sometimes be attacked, so to speak, or weakened by our emotional life. But since it resides in the act of, it resides in the intellect, but is commanded by the act of the will, it cannot be, so to speak, uh, controlled by the emotions. If that helps as, a, as an initial answer, we could talk much longer about that, of course. That's the problem with these topics is that we could we could talk much longer about all of them. Uh, thank you. Okay, so our next question uh, came from uh, the, I believe, up and coming chapter presidents of Yale University um, for our chapter out there. Uh, Justin, do you want to go ahead? Yes, um, thank you so much, Caitlin, and thank you for, for being here, Professor. Really, we all really appreciate it. Um, I, you spoke about this at length, uh, but I, I think I just I think I just couldn't quite wrap my head around it. So I'm interested to hear a little bit more directly about um, St. Thomas's response to the doctrine of irresistible grace, um, because you know it seems as though or I, I guess I'm having trouble understanding how if God Himself moves the will, how it's not necessary that our intellect uh, follow that and end ascent to faith. Um, and, and I guess sort of tangential to that, is this also why St. Thomas makes such an effort to classify faith as an act of the intellect rather than an act of the will? No, the latter part is, is, is not related to that at all. Uh, it, is a, it is an act of the intellect because the act is an ascent to truth. And truth is the proper end of the intellect. And that is the reason why the, the proper act of faith sits in the intellect. It has to do with the finality of the intellect in relationship to truth we receive. Um, and, uh, but the operation of the intellect can be commanded by the will. And in that sense, the will comes into the picture because um, the, uh, the intellect cannot, so to speak, complete the act properly on its own because the truths communicated uh, are transcending the capacity of the intellect in this life. And so the, 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 the will has to, give an, has to give a command. And it gives the command because whatever the intellect can apprehend without fully understanding it is automatically communicated to the will under the, under the aspect of good. The will is drawn to what is good. And what is promised, Thomas says, what is promised in faith is something that the will Find intrinsic, finds intrinsically uh, attractive, the promise of eternal life, the promise of everlasting beatitude. That is something that the will in general wants. Where, where the question of grace comes in has to do with our particular situation in which we find ourselves historically, namely in a situation in which our will has been weakened. And there the motion of grace comes in, namely to reorient the will to God as ultimate end. Our will has been, so to speak, distracted. The will before the fall um, in original righteousness was properly oriented to God and could love God as uh, above all other things. In the present situation, it's not the case. And so the first operation of, of grace as a transitory movement is a redirecting of the will, so to speak, rectifying the will in relationship to God. And when that's the case, and the will can actually follow through 
again activated by God in a general way to choose the proper means to arrive at this final end, God. And so God can, through the, God's own proper causality, bring about infallibly what God wants, but God does not have to overcome the will in an odd way, uh, in the sense, so to speak, as a competitive causality. God is stronger than the will, like a bulldozer, and so simply kind of flatten the will in. Nothing like that. All that the will needs is, so to speak, a mental, uh, a divine operation that allows it to be rectified, to be healed, to in order to be directed to that what it was originally directed to, namely God, as the ultimate end. And so Thomas's account overcomes, so to speak, is 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 uh, uh, is better than a flat, uh, should I say, uh, insistence on on the irresistibility of grace. Grace is infallible uh, because God has ways to overcome obstacles, but God doesn't need to, so to speak, uh, break the will. God would never break the will in its proper constitution as will. Wonderful, thank you, Professor, that was very helpful. Um, so I think we have just enough time for me to get to at least one of our written questions that uh, came in. So this um, is actually coming from one of the students who's involved with our chapter at the University of St. Andrews. Um, and he's tuning in from Scotland, which I'm not sure what the time zone difference is with that, but that would be too late for me. It's um, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, his question is this. Um, what happens interiorly within an individual in regard to their holding of the virtue of faith when they do not act according to what they believe? That is, can one who fails to adhere their will to what they intellectually hold to be said, hold to be said to have faith, at least in some capacity? Very good, very good. Um, there are two kinds of acts that can uh, make us turn away from God when we have the theological virtues. They are acts against the friendship with God, Tom, as Thomas would put it, uh, mortal sins uh, in, in the order of charity, and thereby we lose charity. We simply lose the relationship with God and can be reconstituted. Um, that person can still have the habitus of faith. Habitus of faith does not immediately disappear. Um, not acting on one's faith is normally not acting in charity because they come together normally. And we would lose charity first. Faith is lost by acts against the virtue of faith. As Thomas says, because of the particular nature of faith, our mind can entertain things that are opposite to the faith because we don't hold it, so to speak, in front of us with a mind's eye, like a mathematical formula. After I've understood the definition of a circle, I cannot, I can never consider a contrary to it because it is transparent. It's clear. That's not the case, let's say, with the, um, uh, with the mystery of the Trinity, for example. I can consider alternatives. I can consider in my mind that Christ is not the incarnate Lord. That is conceivable. And when I entertain that, not simply as a hypothesis, but as something to which I considering making an act of assent, or then making an act of assent to that contrary, I am uh, making an act of unbelief, according to Thomas. I'm contradicting um, 
faith. And that is the way to lose the habitus of faith. It is actually lost then with ascending to um, statements or propositions contrary to the faith. That would be, I think, a beginning answer to that in, in, in line of, of Thomas. Normally, Thomas assumes that people who have the faith and have charity might sin in the order of charity and commit a mortal sin in the order of charity. Uh, that has more to do simply with us being drawn, let's say, to, to sensual realities uh, or to, to just some alternative embodied goods that we shouldn't consider. Um, very common is, Thomas refers to that because very common, very common is adultery, for example. Um, but one can also act directly against faith, against that what is, uh, what belongs material to the faith or against the formal object of faith. Namely that I consider alternatives based on my own light of understanding and based on my own private judgment. Um, I might say certain things in the faith make sense to me, others don't, they are, I think, differently. Thomas would say, I have given up on the formal object of faith, and namely that God communicates these matters to me on God's authority, and I'm making now my own uh, light of reason, the criterion. And so whatever I hold, I hold now under different formality. And this is the beginning of unbelief even if I still hold some Christian convictions as my personal convictions, I have changed the formal object or the formality of the object. And I hold them now in a different key, so to speak. And this is a way of entering, um, uh, entering uh, the realm of unbelief. This might have been a little bit much for <laughs> two o'clock at St. Andrews or... <laughs> Uh, it's it's greatly appreciated nonetheless. Um, unfortunately, that does mean that we are out of time for the evening. Uh, so I hope that you will all join me in thanking um, Professor Hooter. One of the downsides to Zoom is that we can't give you a round of applause, but uh, I can see some of the students are doing so anyway.